for us to get ourselves into. Imagine walking across a field on the way to work one morning and you stub your toe on something and, and you look down and, and you see something there. It's, it's heavy and it's, it's big and, and you brush the dirt off of what you see and you notice it's a box and you start digging around it and you pull it out of the ground and, and you pry it open and you see the treasure as your heart leaps. You've stumbled upon this massive fortune unexpectedly. The second parable and the second man uh, is a rare jewels merchant. He's spent his life, we can presume, studying and examining pearls all over the ancient world. And Jesus tells us that he, as opposed to the first man, is in fact looking for the big kahuna of pearls, right? The pearl of great price. And when he finds it, he sold all that he had and bought it. So the first man not looking, the second man is looking. Why does Jesus make that contrast? I think Jesus is contrasting for us two different pathways of entrance into the kingdom. The treasure and the pearl represent the kingdom. They represent Jesus' gospel. They represent salvation itself. So Jesus is saying that some people who enter into the kingdom were not particularly anxious to find Christ. In fact, some people who enter into the kingdom weren't very interested in religion at all. They were going along their way when suddenly an unexpected thing confronted them. The gospel. They'd never really heard it. They weren't seeking it, but there it was. And listen, once God reached them with the gospel, they realized it was of far more value than anything else they had encountered in their lives. Pastor, I'm privileged to know some of your stories. And I know that that is some of your stories. You weren't looking for Jesus, but Jesus weren't looking for you. And he found you. He found you in an unexpected way, some of you. He found you surprisingly. You suddenly heard news that, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You saw that Jesus loves you, that he offers you hope and forgiveness. You trusted in his work for you on the spot and were saved. It's like the prophet Isaiah put it. He says in Isaiah 65 of the Lord, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Maybe that's you here today. You haven't been seeking God. In fact, you're not even sure how you got here this morning. But he's here now seeking you. The, the way, Jesus says, is open before you now. Jesus Christ is present here. And you were hopefully drawn to him. If you feel that or sense that, it's evidence that God is at work in your life. The parable tells you to follow through then. And to do what this man did when he found the treasure. The second person, represented by the pearl merchant, he's different. This guy represents what you might call a seeker. He's been looking for truth. He's been looking for meaning. He's been searching for something to bank his life on. And, and his search has taken him to some harmful misunderstandings, perhaps, or, or to some false leads. And, and at times, he's almost given up. But then... His search is rewarded. The, the pearl of great price is before him and everything else is laid aside to secure the treasure. These are the people of whom Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Maybe you're that kind of person. 
We've got some of those here. I've encountered multiple people like that in my life. I'm sure you have as well. People who aren't indifferent to spiritual things. People that are just naturally inquisitive and, and curious. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like that. You've, you've always had a sense that there's something or someone out there, right? That's, that's greater than you and that can be found and that can be known. And you've explored this a little bit. You've read, you've discussed with others, you've taken some classes. Well, Jesus here speaks to you. Jesus promises that all who genuinely search for him will find him. He's the the one who's here for you today. He's the one who says, knock and enter in. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I think Jesus gives the contrast of these two men in these two brief stories to show us that the people of the kingdom can be those who discovered it unexpectedly or those who looked for it for years. But to any who knock, the door will be opened. The second thing we see is the treasure. The treasure of the kingdom. These two men in these two parables came to the same conclusion, right, through different paths. The conclusion is the kingdom is of surpassing value. The kingdom is of surpassing value. In fact, it is more valuable than you can possibly imagine. You remember the movie Aladdin? They recently did a remake of Aladdin, I think with real humans, right? And not just cartoons. Remember when Aladdin goes into the cave of wonders and there's treasure everywhere and he's got the carpet and he's flying around. But then, kids, you remember what he finds? He finds the genie's lamp and uh, really through happenstance discovers that of all the treasures in the cave, this treasure outshines them all. It is far and away the most valuable and you should sell everything else you see in this cave if you can just to get this lamp. It, It changes everything for Aladdin. The kingdom of God is just such a treasure. Jesus says if you have it, you don't ever need anything else. And if you don't have it, but you can get it, the only rational response for you is to sell off everything, proverbially speaking, and acquire it. Jesus' point is clear. The kingdom is of surpassing value. Why? Why is the kingdom so valuable? Why is Jesus so intent on helping us understand that the kingdom is worth everything you have and more? Why does he compare it to treasure? There's many reasons. I want to just give you two real quick. First, the kingdom is valuable because it gives you access to the king. The kingdom is valuable because it's the king's kingdom. Being a member of the kingdom means that Jesus himself is our treasure. It means that we possess him and he possesses us. When Jesus prays for you in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, his main prayer for you and for me, you can go look it up there, is that we would see his glory. That we would see his glory. If you see the glory of Jesus, you you prize it as a treasure because it is of inestimable value. And so the scriptures ask us to ask ourselves, do you see the glory of Jesus? Do you see that he's your treasure? 
Jesus is our treasure because he's the exact representation of God. If you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus. In Jesus' face, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we see the glory of God. Jesus is our treasure because he willingly humbled himself to become the one mediator between God and man, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us. Jesus is our treasure because he died forsaken on a cross as the Lamb of God, taking the curse and the guilt of our sin on himself. Jesus is our treasure because right now, right now, he prays for you. He intercedes for you. He invites you to come to him in all of your weariness so that he can give you rest. Jesus is our treasure because he has poured out the love of God into our hearts and given us his spirit so that we can have communion with him. He's our treasure because he continues to give himself to us as we approach him in faith. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. The kingdom is valuable because Jesus is the king and Jesus is of surpassing worth. A second reason the kingdom is so valuable is because entry into it is free. (laughs) Entry into it is free. The, The love of Jesus, the treasure that is Jesus Christ, the full life that Jesus offers you comes completely free. By his grace, the kingdom is so valuable because it's something that we could never earn. It can only be received as a gift. The value of the kingdom is that you were justified, counted as a non-sinner, as a righteous person, despite your sin, through the work of Christ for you. The, The value of the kingdom is that for free, If you've trusted Christ, you've been made a child, a son, or a daughter of God. That's your identity. You're no longer a servant. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer an orphan for free. The value of the kingdom is that Jesus continues right now to love you and to care for you, even amidst your ongoing struggles and disappointments and sins and weaknesses for free. How can all that be free? Because Jesus has paid for you already with his own life and death. You were bought with a price. The kingdom is valuable because of who the king is and because of what the king has done freely by his grace for each one of us who trust in him. Listen to the great theologian Jonathan Edwards who once wrote this. There is no love so great and wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus Christ kingdom of God is the most valuable thing you could ever have because found within it is the love of Jesus for sinners. It's the treasure of the kingdom. So what are we supposed to do with this? Let's look at that third. The joy. The joy of the kingdom. Jesus tells us what we're supposed to do. You should do everything you can 
Sell everything you have if, that, if that's what it takes to gain the kingdom. Uh, Brian Burrow is an author who has written a number of books. My favorite book of his is a book called The Big Rich. He wrote it about 12 years ago. It's uh, about really the Texas oil barons and how the oil industry in our state began. And, and for much of the book, he focuses on the great Texas oil man, Sid Richardson. Some of you might know Sid Richardson. Multiple universities in our state have buildings named after him. He was that kind of person. For some time, he was the richest man on the planet in the 30s and 40s, right before World War II began. And at Sid Richardson, early in his life as a, as a wildcatter in the oil fields, sold everything he owned and really borrowed some that he didn't own in order to acquire the rights to drill for oil in the ugly, barren dirt of West Texas where no one would want to live if they're in their right minds. And I can say that because that's where I'm from. And, and, and he did this because he knew that there was oil in the Permian Basin. And Richardson, as I said, became one of the richest men in the world because as Burrow brilliantly portrays in his book, he, he was willing to risk his entire livelihood, everything he had and more, to strike oil. That's what both of these parables teach. The man that finds the treasure in a field immediately, verse 44, goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And the pearl merchants, upon finding this pearl, verse 46, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So, there are many versions of sermons on this text, and many books written about this text, and many versions of Christianity that at this point would tell you, sacrifice everything. It's your duty to go and buy the field. And, you know, that's not the worst application in the world. Not the worst thing you could say. You should sacrifice everything for Jesus. You should serve and give for Jesus. That is what the parable teaches on the surface. And so Christians, because we want to be faithful, go about our duty trying to be obedient to what they think Jesus is asking of them. And that might be what's going on in your head right now. I need to commit myself more to Jesus because he's of infinite value to me. I just want to say that that's not what these two men do at all. I don't know if you saw that. No one tells these guys to do anything. The word sacrifice isn't mentioned at all. In fact, the stories both indicate that they're doing exactly what they know is going to make them happiest. They're doing exactly what they think is going to give them the most joy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 44 of this man who finds the treasure in his, what? Joy. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Here's what I want you to hear as we finish up. Joy is the engine of your change. Joy. Joy is the engine of transformation. Neither the farmer nor the businessman think they're making a sacrifice at all. What motivates these men to sell everything, to really radically change their lives, is their own joy, their own happiness. They believe, you see, that they are gaining something that will make them happier than they've ever been. <laughs> they know they're coming out way ahead. They're gaining much, much, much more than they're losing in selling 
everything they have to get the treasure. What is it that motivates people? What motivates you? Listen, people, anyone who says that we're motivated by anything other than our own happiness and joy, I think is just a fool. That's just not true. I've been around humans for a number of years as a pastor, and I know myself, and we want to be happy. And listen, that is not anti-Christian. God is infinitely happy. God is infinitely joyous. God made us because he wants us to share in his own infinite happiness and joy and experience it ourselves. That's how we're all wired. We want to be happy and we will orient our lives around our own happiness, around our own joy. And I say to you, go for it. Yes, that's good. Jesus knows that. But here's the kicker. The only thing that's going to make you happy only thing that gives joy is gaining the real treasure. Jesus and his kingdom. My good friend, C.S. Lewis, has written about this in one of his most famous sermons, The Weight of Glory. Listen to Jack. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Bible scholar Joachim Jeremiah puts it like this. The decisive thing in this parable is not what the men give up. It is their reason for doing so. The overwhelming experience of the splendor of their discovery. That is what God wants for you today. He wants you to have an overwhelming experience of the splendor of discovering the value of the kingdom. If you see the value of the kingdom, you should be asking, how can I get it? And be willing to do anything in order to attain it. I want to close with this. I I mentioned above that it's free and and it is. And it is. So I think we have to answer the question, how do you get the kingdom? All that God asks is your consent. All that God asks is that you let him get it to you. Tell him you want it and he will give it. He'll give forgiveness. He'll give a new family. He'll give hope. He'll give happiness. He'll give the joy of life with Jesus if you ask. What does it look like to ask? It it looks like admitting that you're guilty of failing God. Believing that Jesus forgives your failures at the cross. Accepting in faith and trust his offer of forgiveness. And reframing your entire life around the treasure. The treasure of his kingdom. Be like the farmer. Be like the pearl merchant. Go after the real treasure. Go and be happy to get 
fabulously wealthy in the joy of God's kingdom. It's all there for you, Jesus says, right here and right now. So come and enter in to the joy of your Father. Let's pray.